0: Log Talk Radio. or good afternoon, however you're listening. This is uh, Beyond the Cover. We want to thank you all for listening. I'm one of your hosts, John Robb, of course joined by the ever great review, awesome man, Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how are you doing?
1: Doing great. That was a great intro. Thank you. I know, I, off, I I
0: had to, you know, <laughs> I, I wanted to make you feel good, you know, kind of in the new year. We had to take a week off. I was out of town, and then we're back this week, and then we're going to be on the 14th and the 28th of February, looking for guests on that one, and then we'll um, put it on the website. Remember, suspensemagazine.com. You can check that out to see maybe who we got coming up, and check out all the shows, of course. You can come to blogtalkradio.com slash suspensemagazine, or if it's easier for you, just subscribe on iTunes, and then you're good that way, too. So we have a great guest tonight. We got going on Jeff, um, author Peter Swanson.
1: It's a and fantastic
0: be, new book he's got out, and I'm looking forward to yep, talking to Peter. It's going to be great. And it just came out. It just came out January the 10th. It's called Her Every Fear. So let's stop wasting any time and let's just go right now to Peter and jump on the phone. So, Peter, thank you so Hi. much for coming, my man. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. So let's just jump right in here uh, to the first question, of course. And her every fear, again, is your latest book just came on sale, January tenth. So you can buy it however you want to buy books. You can find it out there, and it's all ready to go. So give us the um, the the inside scoop here of what you have for us on uh, on this latest book.
2: Yeah. So it's my third um, standalone thriller kind of like a dark psychological thriller. And um, the really, really short version of what this book is about, the four-word version, is um, it's sort of an apartment swap gone wrong book. Um, It's about a a young woman from London who is um, someone who has always been a really anxious, um, phobia-ridden person who's also had sort of a past trauma. So she's a nervous person. To begin with, and um, as part of sort of her um, desire to break out of this shell, she agrees to a six-month apartment swap with a a second cousin she's never met who lives in Boston, Massachusetts. So she's going to go live in his place, and he's going to go live in her place in London. And she gets there, and um, when she gets to the apartment, she discovers there's been a murder, a recent murder in the apartment building. And as she lives in her second cousin's apartment, she begins to um, imagine or suspect that her cousin might be responsible.
1: Um, It is a terrific book, I must say. And um, I actually had just been in London recently and was right in the Hampstead area, so I wanted to say you oh, right. for making that beautiful place a scary place. Now I really
0: appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. Right, very scary place. Although that, <laughs> did you um, make your bathroom a scary place if you wanted to? <laughs> yes, the
2: bathroom is a scary place. I would say it can be. <laughs> yeah, it can be.
1: Um, why do you have characters in your books that are so flawed?
2: Yeah, I mean. Do do you mean like um not t- not having a typical sort of s- straight ahead hero type of character?
1: Yes. And or do you mean, are you are you means talking means specifically
2: means about Kate's um Kate is the main character and she has this, this anxiety issues. Are you talking about that as well? Right. Yes, yeah, exactly. I I mean I think the Kate with the anxiety issues um I mean, I thought about that a little bit, and one thing is its I think it's interesting to have a main character who has, um, in this case, some mental health problems. Um, and and in this case, I think panic attack disorder, and also she's a little bit of a fantasist, um, which is someone who sees danger and everything, so she's always jumping ahead to the next um next event so it can if she's about to cross the road what she's seeing is the truck that's going to hurtle down and kill her um we all do it i mean we're all fantasists to a certain degree i mean we've all probably gotten onto an airplane and and uh thought you know this plane's going to go down so but she does it all the time um, so, so one thing is, I think it makes her interesting as a character, and it adds to the um, her narrative. But I also think um, that she's actually not that different. I, th- I think you—it's it, so many people out there are struggling with um, varying forms of mental illness or anxiety. I've definitely had anxiety issues, and when I sort of came open about them, it's amazing how many people, you know, are like, oh my god, me too, or my mom too, or, you know, my husband too or whatever. So I actually think she's she's um she's fairly ordinary um as as a heroine. If that makes sense. Yep. Yeah.
1: It does. And it makes so, her kind of realistic too.
2: Yeah, I mean that's I mean my, my whole thing about realism um, I mean, I'm not great at... Some thrillers that I can't get into are, are often the sort of plastic hero thrillers, and I might love the plots, but um, just I can't I can't go with uh, the heroes because they don't seem real. And it's not even... It's more like I want to buy into the whole scenario. So I think realism is, is great in and of itself, but it's also a way to... Pull a reader into an entertaining, engaging, creepy story and make them believe that they're actually in there. Um, so it's a it's an author trick as well as being, I think, um, an end that justifies the means.
0: Now, the one thing that, of course, your book is is very much like a psychological thriller. I mean, it gets into people's heads. Is is that something that when you're, you know, an author and you're kind of exploring with the characters, how much of yourself do you kind of think about when you're like, you know, psychologically, are you looking to try to scare the reader in the fact of you want them to kind of be in that psychological moment of this is what's going on and it's, and, you know, it just hits all the senses of the brain? Yeah,
2: yeah. Um... I mean, talking about how to scare the reader. I mean, it's a really, it's a, it's a interesting thing. I think if you try too hard at it, you might fail. Um, I, when I originally had the idea of this premise, and I and I won't give it all away because I had some ideas that take place later in the book. I mean, it creeped me out, so I was like, okay, this is a creepy idea, and I can I can go with this. And then, and then it's just a matter of thinking about pace and. Um, how much, you know, how long you can keep your reader um, waiting to find out what's really happening in this situation, and and world building really, like I, you know, trying to create a realistic world, and one way to do that is to sort of get inside the, um, in this case, the protagonist had Kate, and really describe her experience um, as it's happening, and, um, you know, get, you know, allow basically for the readers to have a subjective experience through her eyes, which, um, you know, I kind of, at one point I was, I was kind of hoping to do this throughout the entire book, and I ended up veering away from that um, and cutting over to other perspectives as well, partly because I had a larger story that I wanted to tell. But um, that's, I, I have no idea what the question was you initially asked, but maybe I came close to answering it.
1: Well, I, actually you are steering toward what I wanted to ask you about because I I was curious about the point of view because at at a point in the novel all of a sudden you do start going into other people's heads and I was just wondering why you did that.
2: Um So, Jeff, I think so I think you mentioned in the review you would have preferred it to stay throughout her perspective.
1: Uh yes, that's correct.
2: Yeah, I mean, still love I, the book. No, don't
1: get me wrong, but
2: yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, that's totally fine. Um, I mean, I think that um, that was my original intention, and then um, so there's, so there's just to talk a, a little bit about the the idea behind the book. So so one idea is this kind of gothic um, thriller update in which um, I mean, for, if you have a gothic thriller, you have three elements, right? You have um, generally have a protagonist who's a young woman you have Mm -hmm. a house or a space or an apartment that's vaguely threatening um and new to them and then you have a man and the, the man inevitably has you know secrets or a dark past but i was actually there was no man in this i mean he's he's there not in um flesh but in because it's his place but she's in this sort of threatening apartment and i really wanted to tell the story of a woman who begins to um Suspect she's living in the home of a murderer. And then I had another idea, and um, this idea comes in sort of later in the book, and it's an idea about um, it's really about uh, when a friendship can turn bad in the sense that um, two people, it's usually men, although I think it can be two women as well, um, both with maybe malignant or psychotic tendencies, get together and when they're together, they they enact those those fantasies. Um, I'm thinking specifically of someone like Leopold and Loeb and the murders they committed, and and also maybe um, the Columbine murders, the two teenage yeah. boys who maybe if they hadn't met one another would never have uh, acted that. the way yeah. they did. So and and I had read a little bit about this and heard that there's always an alpha and a beta psychopath, usually um, one person who takes charge and one person who Sort of um, follows their lead. And I wanted to explore that idea. So that's why I veered off in narrative essentially because there was a larger story I wanted to be told and I didn't think I could tell it all through um, Kate's perspective. I wish I could have in some ways, but I don't, I don't think I could have done it.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those books that when you are going through, it, it takes you, you, you know, it's very much a suspense novel because it takes you on that nice, slow kind of journey that you're kind of getting into. And then you have the little explosions and until everything, of course, at the end now was when you, when you sat down and you started to write it, did things kind of turn out the way that you did? I mean, did you have to kind of pace yourself in order to kind of get out what you wanted to do or you know I mean did you kind of maybe struggle with that aspect? How about that kind of pacing of it when when you were kind <clears throat> of getting through it? How did you want to you know kind of handle it through the reader
2: um, i mean i I think I set out to be a little deliberately um slower paced in the beginning um, mm-hmm. this partly comes from from books I like to read i think I think thrillers sometimes make the mistake and maybe. Maybe this isn't a mistake for all readers, but it's. But I don't love it. Where we're like you're suddenly in a very suspenseful scene, sort of the second chapter in, and um, to me it's like a little soon. Like I just want to be. I want to be immersed in a story a little bit longer. Um, and, and it's, but it's scary as a thriller writer because you know, what's the one thing a thriller writer is scared of? They're scared of writing a book that has no thrills. So. Um, And you all know that feeling when you pick up a thriller and you're just halfway through and you're like, when is something actually going to happen here? Um, So it's a tough, it's a tough balance. Um, I definitely, I thought with the story I could sort of sprinkle through little moments and kind of get to the bigger stuff later in the book. Um, You know, I, I, I thought about it from the reader's perspective to a certain degree and then at one point you just have to sort of trust yourself and tell the story. Um, This is in your first draft, you know, tell the story to yourself and then figure if the pacing's off later, you can kind of tweak it later. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, One of the things I liked about this book is I kept seeing if Hitchcock were alive, he would make this into an amazing movie. So I have to ask you, is Hitchcock play into your mind when you were writing this?
2: Yeah, I mean, definitely. I um, I mean, that's that's just because I'm kind of a, um, well, I'm a big movie guy, and I'm definitely a huge Hitchcock fanatic, and have been ever since I was a, a pretty young kid. I think I saw my first Hitchcock film. it was probably about 10, and I watched Dial M for Murder on television, and ever since then I've just been sort of fascinated by his films. So I did I did think about him and um you know there's obviously some specific stuff I think with the, um when I was talking about the two psychopaths uh Hitchcock played around with that theme in um Rope um and I was obviously thinking um one of the things about the apartment building is that it's um it's three-sided it's like a U and um, it has a courtyard over the middle, and and some people in some apartments can look across and see into other people's apartments. So, um, <coughs> excuse me, got my cat scratching at the door here. Um, <laughs> so when um, so as soon as I um, realized the building was like that, I'm like, oh, I, I think there's got to be a voyeur in this apartment building, and in fact, that's the first perspective switch I do, um, Kate. Uh, breaks into the murdered girl's apartment, and she notices a man watching from across the street. And the next chapter, it cuts to the perspective of that man. Um, and so, I was thinking about um, Hitchcock then, and I was actually thinking that's a scene that you never get in Rear Window, where the um, what's what's amazing about Rear Window. Lots of things are amazing about that film, but you know, the camera, Hitchcock's camera, never leaves that that um apartment building never leaves Jimmy Stewart so you're always constantly seeing from his perspective um, mm-hmm. even though you, you you only see what he sees so i kind of uh mixed that up and thought um let's let's see what the the person across the way is seeing as well
0: it was cool yeah it it i mean when, when you put it in the visual like that it kind of gives you I mean, it kind of gives you the really creepy feeling because, like you said, you know, you kind of go from breaking in and then you see the, the the man watching, and all of a sudden, boom, you're 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 seeing the man, and you're kind of like almost like kind of transformed into his head. But I guess the thing is kind of the challenges for you from having to switch like that because you're kind of going from you know one you know one character and all of a sudden jumping into the other, which is something totally different. Was that difficult to be able to kind of have to switch that and get it to work correctly?
2: Um, I think my previous book I had really played around heavily with multiple perspectives, so it was actually less so in this book. Um, I mean, I liked it because I was like <clears throat> i knew I knew instantly who Alan, the guy across the way, I kind of knew his story. And I wanted to tell that as well, so it kind of gave me a break. I mean, in terms of writing it, I kind of liked, I liked getting a break from Kate and going into you know Alan's perspective. Um, I mean, it, there, there are fun things you can do as a thriller writer with multiple perspectives because what you ultimately can do is give the reader information that one character might have that other characters don't and it sort of becomes a, um, so there's there's some things, so at one point in the book you you know things um, that are happening to Kate that she doesn't know so it does as a reader puts you in this sort of God's eye point of view that um, you, you know these things the characters don't um, which can be used to ratchet up suspense I mean I think it can also be used in the opposite it can kind of and suspense, mm-hmm. depending on how you use it. But um, but I like, I, I just love that. I like that God's Eye view every once in a while as a reader where you kind of know more than some of the characters.
1: Right. I'm wondering if you could talk about um, the journey to publication for your first novel, and it has one of the coolest titles I've ever heard, uh, The Girl with a Clock for a Heart. I just love that okay. title. Could you talk a bit about how that got published?
2: kind of an interesting story i mean i um i've been writing books that was the um the fourth full-length novel that i'd written so i'd written three unpublished books that i'd been out there querying um agents um trying to get a book deal and you know no success at all um and i was actually kind of i was discouraged i mean i wasn't overly discouraged in the sense that I never had high expectations that I would, you know, write write my first book and, and land a big book deal. But um, I had told myself at this point that, um, you know, whether I got published or not, I really liked doing it. I actually really liked writing crime fiction and um, crime novels and crime novellas. So I was just going to keep doing it. So I wrote a novella called The Girl with a Clock for a Heart, which was... Um, Took place in 1980s um, with between college freshmen, and it was kind of um, a noir sto- story that was transposed into this time. So I came up with a title for it that I thought kind of sounded like a pulp pulp novel from the 50s or the 60s. And um, so this was a novella. I think it was about um, you know it was it was 30 35 pages, something like that, and um, published it on. Um, on a webzine called The Mysterical E, and then just kind of forgot about it. Um, and I think about a, a year later, I got an email from um, an agent basically saying he'd read the story online and um, was really liked it, and did he think I could turn it into a book. Um, so actually, I finally got an agent by... Having an agent come to me, i mean this is not this is not a um how to get an agent' cause this is sort of a random situation.
0: <laughs> this is um, not a how to book <laughs>
2: yeah for anyone for anyone taking notes, I mean you really have to write the query letters and all that misery yeah. that that entails yeah, but um right. <clears throat> so this was an amazing thing i mean I looked i you know first thing I did is I googled this guy's name just to find out if he was legit and not just you know someone um you know, with some sort of self-publishing scam or something like that. But anyway, sure. he I, you know, he was a real agent. Um, he had great clients, and um, we started working together and came up with an idea to um, not expand the novella, but to have the same two characters from the 1980s story meet again 20 years down the line and um, piece together a book that way, and um, he sold it. So it was, it was pretty amazing. <clears throat>
0: now, it's cool. the one thing that, of course, in your, in your first three books, they're all standalones. And Now, yeah. they're, the, the ones that are published, I should say. So they're all standalones. <clears throat> now, have you decided that this is the route that you think you're going to go on further, or are you going to try to go the more traditional, which you see a lot more of, and go the series route?
2: Um I would go series route if I came up with a really good character and I just haven't like I haven't landed on <clears throat> like this type of detective or this type of um character that I want to stick with um but in some ways I would I would like to do it. I think it would be um I think it would be fun to explore a character through several different stories um <clears throat> excuse me a little bit of a cough I think I, right. I actually think that um had had I first gotten published ten years ago, or even five years ago, I think my editor would have suggested that I create a series character because it was pretty much standard that until recently, um, the the bestsellers in detective fiction all had to be series characters, and now suddenly the standalone has come in um, and gotten popular. I think because of uh, first Julian Flynn um with gone girl and now you know there's been a bunch of standalones girl on the train that have done really well so i think um publishing houses are now a little more interested in in standalone so i haven't had any pressure from my editor to create a series character yet gotcha
1: well that's good to hear so i'm assuming the next book will be a standalone as well um so I was going to ask you, what is next for you? And also, are we going to see any of your books um, on the screen at some point?
2: So it's actually um, – the <clears throat> my fourth book um, is finished. And by finished, I mean I wrote a first draft. So it's um, got a lot of work left to do, but I'm sort of in revising right now, getting ready to send that off. Um, and um, I do actually have – um current film options on girl with a clock and my second book the kind worth killing and by options i mean um you know a producer has paid money for an optional period of time to try and make a movie um this by no means guarantees or even um is a likely chance of it actually becoming a movie. But both these options are still active, and as far as I know, they're both they're both working toward getting this done. So, you know, I don't know. I actually don't hear a lot about it. You'd be surprised they don't keep the writers in the loop. So, but it's all they good. They would make
1: great films, so hopefully it will happen. Yeah,
2: nothing on Her Every Fear yet. Um, you know, I'll... Hopefully I'll get an option for Hollywood's I
0: mean, weird. You just never know. Hollywood's weird.
2: Well, the whole thing, I mean, what's amazing is, um, I mean, people, you know, people say, oh, it'll make a great film. It'll definitely be made into a film. And I'm thinking, I, mean, I, I don't know. Here's one example. I mean, do you remember Donna Tartt made this big splash with The Secret History? I think that was back in early 90s. I mean, it was a huge success. And it was a, sort of ready for the screen. It was like five college kids who killed a fellow student and all this. And it's never become a movie. It's never left option, though. I mean, it's been under option, I think, for 25 years now. But it's it's so hard to get a movie made. You're basically creating a company every time you make a movie. I mean, you got to hire the cast. All the timing has to work. All the money has to come in at the right time. the insurance has to come in at the right time. you have to build you know infrastructure and all this it's it's just you know it's actually amazing it never gets made at all but they are um so for for the kind worth killing they have a they have a script that I actually read um and they have a director hired and they're supposedly casting but you know these things we have n no, i have no idea so
0: yeah my agent is very crazy uh, town.
2: Yeah, I mean it's a weird it's it's um I think it is. I think it's a really weird business. Um mm-hmm. I, I have no I mean, I, I did go to LA for not for movie reasons but for the LA book festival and um but met like my producers and met my film agent and I gotta say they were um they were real all really nice but they kind of talk different than people in the publishing industry. They're more they're more excited. I mean, it was just like, you know, oh, we're going to make this movie. It's going to be a big hit. I, You know, it's yeah. very strange. Yeah. Very strange.
0: Well, Peter, we want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been an f- absolute fabulous conversation. Wishing nothing but the best. The book is awesome. Congratulations on that. And, um, so again, just can't thank you enough for coming on.
2: Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for coming on.
2: All right. Take care, John.
0: You have a good one. Right. Enjoy. Right. Bye. 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 Right.
2: Again, everybody. That is
0: author Peter Swanson and the latest book, which is out now, is called Her Every Fear. Hitchcockian psychological thriller. You're into that. You got to get this book. You know, make I always say, run, don't walk, and go get it now. Or just get on your computer and hit click one now. Boom, in your Kindle. Life's good. Hey. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back. Jeff and I are going to talk about what just happened with the New York Times, uh, changing their bestseller list around a little bit, getting rid of a category, and, you know, awards in general. And I'd like to be curious to know, and if anybody wants to email after to let us know, do you even look at book lists and bestseller lists to make your selections? be curious to kind of see where this leads us. So in the meantime, check this out. Back after the break, again we want to thank Peter Swanson for joining us tonight and talking about his latest book. Make sure you go to Peter-Swanson.com. Make sure you put the hyphen in there, or you just never know what you're going to get uh, in today's day and age with the internet. You type in the wrong address, it might take you someplace you really never wanted to go. So it's Peter-Swanson.com. So and it is a John terrific. I always kind of. Yeah, Jeff and I always kind of figure out, we we try to get a new topic, and then we really didn't have anything, and we were just going to maybe try to wing it, but then um, Shannon sent me over a news story, and it was how the New York Times has changed their their changes to their bestseller list, and Kensington Publishing, who is our sponsor of the show here, they put out a really big letter talking about how it was a bad thing and um, how it's going to hurt people. Now, my view is, and basically what they're doing is, is that their list, their major list will remain, which, let me just read this real quick. So this is from them. It's their top 15 hardcover fiction, top 15 hardcover nonfiction, top 15 combined print and e-fiction, top 15 combined print and e-nonfiction, and then it's the children's hardcover, children's, top 10 adults, and blah, blah. What they basically have taken away is there's no more... Paperback bestseller list. So when those novels pretty much go from hardcover, it says what will, and that's what's going to discontinue. Um, and the Washington Post confirmed that the newspaper will discontinue, among other lists, for both hardcover and paperback graphic novels. So they're changing things up. Now, what do you, first of all, Jeff, when you saw the thing, what was the first thing that kind of came to your mind when you saw them do this? Well,
1: a lot of authors that we love, it's going to ruin them. It's um, if you're a guaranteed bestseller, let's say, you know, but you're in the low end. You're no longer going to be showing up on the list at all because the extended part of it's gone completely as well. But also, if you're if you don't sell well in hardcover, but you're a number one bestseller in terms of eBooks or paperback, that's not going to matter anymore either. And that it's going to
0: hurt a lot of authors. Now, when you say hurt, is it going to hurt their sales because people won't be finding out as much about them? Because I, I, the only time I look at a bestseller list is maybe I'll look at it, and at max, and this is no joke, maybe twice a year I'll be like, oh, let's just see what it was this week. Like maybe there's a book come out, and I'm going to be like, oh, I wonder if this kind of made the list, um, and I'll look at it. But I've never, ever picked a book based on the New York Times list, ever, never, ever have done it. I don't know if I've even – because with all the things I get from Amazon and all the you – know, you click on a Jeffrey Deaver book, it says, well, if you like Jeffrey Deaver, you're going to like all these other books, and I get like 15 pages, and I'll go through that. You know, I do the same thing with music or movies, and it gives me all these other suggestions, and that's how I find out. And then I read and see whether or not I like it or whatnot. And then with Goodreads, you have everybody out. With all the social media, you have everything out. So I'm thinking, and then with all these newspapers, a lot of them, you know, dropping reviews or using, like, you know, you, Jeff, like the AP, a lot of people just pick up that review and don't even have in-house reviewers anymore. So how many? who knows how many newspapers your reviews are in from – you know, smaller places. So I don't even, I kind of looked at it and I was like, okay. I, I, I didn't even, it didn't really even, you know, affect me that much, I guess.
1: Uh, from a, being a library background that I've got, I can tell you that a lot of people look at those lists and let's say you mentioned Jeffrey Deaver. They might not even know Jeffrey Deaver has a new book out, and then all of a sudden they see it on the New York Times list and go, oh, he has a new book out. Then they'll go out and buy it, or they'll go to the library and put a hold on it. And I know a lot of readers don't pay attention to when books come out. They'll see it on the Barnes & Noble bestseller rack, or they'll see it on a display somewhere and realize, wait a minute, he has a new book out, or she has a new book out. So the list
0: is awareness as well. But you know what? It's only awareness for those 20 books that are coming out. And I think right. that with the social media and, – and here's the one thing I will say. And I think it's wonderful, and I love libraries. And I think that libraries need to be expanded. There needs to be more funding. There needs to be you know more libraries around for better access for people. But the one Hold thing on, recording about now. those okay. people – yeah, I'm serious, because the, the one thing that about those people, though, that are coming in and placing that book on hold or picking up that next book, you know what they're not doing? They're not buying it. Mm-hmm. They're basically getting it for free. So is reading a library book, from if somebody that sees Jeffrey Deaver on that list and decides to pick up his book or put it on hold and get it, is it really helping Jeffrey? That they're reading that book for free, yes. if that's how they're getting their books? Well, no,
1: because what happens is if all these people are doing that, the library ends up ordering more copies. So it does help Mr. Right. Deaver in that case. But the other thing it's going to hurt – But do you
0: think it would help listen. more if he, they were on social media and they were on Goodreads and they see people – Talking about it, or they see Amazon. It's got five thousand reviews, which means a shitload of people have read it, and then they buy the book. Well,
1: here's the, here's the follow-up question: Is something on social media? Does that translate into sales as well? It
0: um, it's the I same. Think question. It We're just not colorless. Well, I think it does more because you don't have the access to it free. Um, I think that if you, if you see somebody talking about it or you see a lot of people saying that this book was great, I mean, let's face it, you know, Fifty Shades of, is it 50, yeah, Fifty Shades of Grey was a terrible written book, but why was it popular? Yeah. Because all the house mommies were all talking about it. I don't think it was anything bigger than the... I don't think anybody picked that up because it was on the New York Times list. I think it was because everybody was talking about what that book was. I think that... Mm-hmm. Gone Girl was the same way. I think that people just picked it up because everybody was talking about it. Hunger Games. You know, I don't think it had. I don't think those books being on the list had anything to do with the popularity because they were on the list. I think word of mouth is still the strongest way oh, to sell a book, without a doubt. Without a doubt. So, but let, let me give I you think a scenario. Twenty years. Because, you know, I'm, in, you know, I'm 46, you're, and, and you're a little older than me, so I think in 20 years when these, when, these, when these teenagers are 15, 16, 17, you know, 20 right now and they become 40, do you think that, you know, those people right now are looking at the New York Times list, or are they just getting all the information on their phones, on social media, on all those places, and in 20 years this list might even be gone? Because the older people, like ourselves, that kind of still grew up with newspapers. You know, we still had to read the newspaper. But like my daughters, you know, twenty four, twenty, they they didn't, they didn't grow up reading the newspaper. They grew up getting all their news some other place. They, I guarantee you, they probably haven't even been on the New York Times website. So, is this going to be in twenty five, thirty years? Just is it just going to be you know? Um, What's the word? Is it just going to be obsolete anyway?
1: Well, I think part of the problem that this whole list has and I don't I, I say problem it might not necessarily be a problem, but it's defined as the pinnacle that an author can reach right now. So, let's use. I will me agree as an with that. With you hear a lot that. of them
0: in thriller fest. A lot of them always say, yeah. "Hey, I made the extended list or God, you know, I mm-hmm. want to be – there's one author in particular, and I'll never say who that author is, is so hell-bent on being number one on the bestseller list that I honestly think that it drives that author crazy. And I don't think that it should <laughs> because it's like, so what? Okay, see, so you know, who cares? So, but mm-hmm. what's the difference? So you can't put the number one on your cover? Okay, what's the difference? I just don't know how much sales that does. It doesn't help in other but nice countries. Put on the cover of your new book.
1: Put on the cover of your new I mean, book. Uh, number one New York Times. It's pretty
0: awesome. Right, but let, let's it's use. Pretty, but I'm I think it's use pretty awesome example. for the author, but I don't think it's going to sell oh, them yeah. any more books.
2: I, I think would it's agree with an that. Ego boost. But
0: I think it's just an ego boost. But I think it
1: also helps the author sell their next books because. Uh, no,
0: there's, a this fine, there, point.
1: there's a possibility that people say, oh, hey, oh, I picked that up because I saw it was a New York Times a seller, liked it, I'm going to start reading his books. Also, as an author, let's say I make the list, there's going to be a difference for my next book. A publisher's going to go, oh, he made the list with his last book. And if I don't make the list, they're going to go, well, were the sales? And so there's a major difference there. And I can tell you an author told me point blank that when he made the list, the publisher threw him a party, and they said, now you've made it, and now we want to work with you.
0: So, basically, what you're saying is is that publishers today don't give really two shits about the book. They only care about your sales of the book
1: if you want to do this as a career it's all about the numbers you, you yeah, have to write a lot of
0: authors that the absolute we know. best book every
1: single time
0: right but there's a lot of authors that so we know that have never mm-hmm. made the list maybe never published in hardcover and do pretty yeah. good living on what they do do they? I I think that they I think they very well do. I mean um okay, here's an instance. Has Kevin O'Brien ever made the best sellers list?
1: Um that's a great
0: question. Right. I do not know. Right. And he does pretty him. damn well for himself. He's never been in hardcover. He's always in paperback. I don't think he's ever made the New York Times list. So, and I think he does pretty darn well for himself.
1: I would say I agree, but if you think of success in terms of money, I oh, well, don't now think you're
0: getting he's making into the definition of success exactly. That's the other and question. My, and here's my definition of success. My definition of success is whatever you feel my career has gone because me as a person for let's just say for the magazine i can't define my level of success all i can say is this is you know i've actually done what i've wanted to do now how big it goes it has no bearing on me it has everything else on you so when someone looks from the outside like yourself and you were to look at me you will say wow that guy's pretty successful But is that because, you know, and I don't have any of these things, people. I'm just letting you know. Is that because I have a big house and I have two Ferraris and I have a, you know, I have a house in France? You know, is that success, or is success to you basically like you're doing what you love? And you're making money at it, and you're and you're feeding your family, and you're making food, you know. And maybe you don't have the two Ferraris. Maybe you got two Toyotas. Maybe you don't have a house in the south of France. Maybe you just go on a vacation once a year for two weeks. So success for me, like I define it, it's 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 however someone else looks at you, and how they want to define it. I
1: I would agree with you on that. Um, I think part of the problem, and I say problem, and we're talking about the list, if I find my success is I get to write a book a year, and people will read it and like it, and Uh I feel like I wrote a great book, and I do that. I'm happy. Is that successful? For me, it is, because I finished another book, and I got another book coming out in a year, that sort of thing. But in terms of I guess it's what goals do we want to have? Do we want to increase our readership with each book? Do we want to be financially successful? Do we want to be able to pay for things like healthcare? And you know, um, do we want to not eat top ramen every night to be successful? Mm-hmm. Right. And making the list with a major publisher—that is sort of what is gauged as successful
0: do so now that the, the majority so now that of writers who write it. books?
1: Go ahead. But I was going to say, the majority of writers that we know have to do other things to make a living. It's They can't live on their own
0: true. just writing books. You know, there are some of exceptions, to that. Think, Yes, 90% of them have to do yeah. that. Mm-hmm. But there's also but a lot of authors... But by the New York Times... But I well, I mean, there's uh, also a lot of authors that have maybe had a great career and then book 20 they made they made the new york times list i've heard of, That's i've, right. I've seen the majority that too. people that way mm-hmm. yeah
1: um all the great names we know lee child jim rollins examples they didn't make it with their first book they made it with like their seventh or something like that and right. then they've been consistently on there but by changing the rules a lot of authors are going to just feel the injury of it. I can see no extended list. There's going to be some authors we really like who have been consistently making the list. All of a sudden, they might not make the list. And that might turn around to them and say, well, you didn't make the list this time. We're not interested in your next book. And I can see that happening, but even if the sales were better the the current, than the
0: previous. The, but who would say that? The current publisher or a new publisher? Because if I your would say the publisher would current publisher Okay, so – but now that there is no paperback and then the things have changed, don't they have to now change their structure and their mentality? Because there's no – they no longer can have that as a crutch or as an excuse to maybe not having somebody have a book now. Um,
1: I have seen and heard so many horror stories from authors that I like a lot and they're all along these lines. You've heard them too.
0: And I, oh yeah, oh yeah, we all heard them, and yeah. I think that, but what yeah. I'm saying is that, okay, so if you write for Penguin, and let's just say that you, you know, you, you constantly sell, whatever, um, I, I'm just going to make a number, you constantly sell 200,000 copies of your hardcover and your ebook, and that's what you, and that's, and that's kind of where you're at, you know, you're kind of a 200 to 250,000 uh, seller. Now, Penguin knows that, Now, that's enough to get you on the list. Now that they've changed the rules, maybe that's not enough to get you on the list, but you're still selling the same amount of books. They already know how much profit they're going to make off of you because you're still selling the same amount of books. So why would they then say, well, you know what? Your name's not on the New York Times, so we're not going to do that anymore. And I think that if they start doing that, I'll tell you what. You come see me. (laughs) And I'll deal with you. Because if that's the case and they start dropping, you know who's going to collect all the rewards? All the smaller publishers that are going to start picking these people up and they're going to start being a lot more successful. Because as for, for the big publishers, I'm sorry big publishers, you no longer have the control of what goes out anymore. You are no longer controlling the supply of books. Now the supply of books has, I think, outlasted the demand because I think there's so many of them, which is why everybody's clawing and scratching for the same kind of, you know, for the same kind of pie. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're going to have to. I think publishers are going to have to change their thing, or or not change their thing. But I think that if you don't, and you start looking and saying, oh well, you know, you didn't you didn't make the the New York Times list, so we're not going to buy your next book. I think that they're going to start missing out on a lot of profits that they still make, and I think that the ones that decide, you know what, this guy still sells two hundred thousand copies. I don't give a shit if he makes the list. I'm going to still keep him because he knew, I know what profit I make from him, and I know what I'm going to get every single time. So, I, I got to get some pies now that
1: you mentioned pies. Thanks. But uh,
0: <laughs> Well and so and this other you know, and this leads into the same thing and I know we're running out of time and I wanted to touch on this too, but what about awards? There's a lot of awards. Us with the magazine, we give one award. Now we now we do list out the best of books and we put a seal to say you're the best of book, you know, which is this is what we think are the best books of two thousand sixteen. But we only give out one award. We give out the, the, the Crimson Scribe Award to the one book, and it was Greg Horowitz with Orphan Exodus in 2016. And, and that's book. it. No more. But we have a list of the other books that we think were – were, and all the books that we listed were all in the running for that award. And these are the ones that were in the running. So do you think that awards make a difference in book sales? I would say no. Now I do know I this think for a that fact. it's, and I, I agree with you. But uh, there is one author. Actually, there's two or a couple two or three authors that literally said that when we announced that they were the best of list, their publisher gave them more a, a, a new book, a two book, a two and three book deal after that. Now I don't know oh, if it's sold awesome. any more copies, but they did get more books from their publisher. So that was a good thing, and I was very happy to hear that. But I do agree that I don't, and I agree to the fact of I don't know if it sells more awards. I don't know if you put that, you know, uh, that MWA award on there for the Edgar or you put the Crimson Scribe on there or you put the Silver Falcone on there, whatever it is, is it going to, if two people are looking at a book and they got 10 bucks and they're sitting there in the store, are they going to pick the one that said this is an award winner or are they going to pick up the other one? I don't know.
1: If I see a book that says Edgar Award winning author, I will look at the book and see if the story sounds interesting. But okay. Now,
0: does it that actually Edgar make me buy author, the book? I don't know. So, what if that what if that same book made the New York Times bestseller list?
1: It's it's to me it's the same thing. I I don't it's the same. That's exactly what I on, think, too.
0: It's the same thing.
1: Yeah, and that falls into reviews as well. I write reviews. Do my reviews yeah. – does someone read my review and go, i got to go buy this book right now? I don't know.
0: I think reviews have actually a lot more play than awards and a bestseller list, which is why you have websites like Yelp. It's a 100% review site. You're picking based off what other people have said about it. Angie's List, you're picking on what other people have said about it. You know, you're, that's how you're picking your, your, your people on, on, those, on just those two sites I just thought of strong in my head. Um, you, know, you might go to Amazon, and you might be looking for a vacuum cleaner, and you literally might be picking it from the review. Not that it won an award. Not that Chevy has all these commercials saying they won all these J.D. Power Awards or whatever. Yeah, you want to hear from the guy who says, yeah, I bought a Chevy Cavalier, and it sucked. And you're like, ooh, maybe I'll go buy another car then. So mm-hmm. I think that reviews have a lot more, a lot more, um, oh, what's the word, cachet, I guess you want to say, Maybe.
1: It's about the word of mouth.
0: As you said, a review is
1: an example of word yes. of mouth. It's, yes. And if a book is getting I think a great review, it's a lot more board, powerful.
0: I think it's a lot more powerful than a a award. I would agree with you. Yeah. 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 And that's why I'm sad to see that there's less review sites, there's less magazines, there's less places that authors can go to find fans. And I think that by making our show and stuff more electronic and more to those people who have cell phones and that's how they're getting all of their stuff and that's how they're looking through the world through a five and a half inch screen. I think that is the more powerful statement going to be moving forward than worrying about if the New York Times cancels their paperback list.
1: I just know that there's going to be some authors that down the road, we're going to be talking to, and they're going to say, you know, because they changed, I, my publisher dropped me. and we'll I, think go, to be You've be.
0: I think it's going to be fascinating to see if that happens, and I hope that – and I'm going to start checking, and we're going to start looking out there on Twitter and whatnot, and I want to see if any of them do, because if they do, then we got to get them on this show, and we got to talk to them, and we got to see exactly what that publisher said about that, because I'm just curious to know – did they drop you because you weren't on the list, even though your sales stayed the same? Or because you weren't on the list, did your sales drop? But the other thing you've got to realize, too, is maybe, and this is and this is something you have to consider, because that same author who was so hell-bent on getting to that number one spot on the New York Times list, they haven't really written that good of a book since. So maybe you're just not putting out the best product.
1: There you go. Yep.
0: And I think, it's about you know, writing a so, great book every single time.
1: Yeah, and in
0: fact, it's a, it's about doing that's, better that's than what you did you the can first control. Time. That's it. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, because you can't control anything else. And there's a lot of cookie cutter right. authors out there who have written the same book seventeen times in a row, and they just keep selling, list or no list. They're going to keep selling. So. And uh, well, baffles my mind that is for sure. I know. Well, we are coming down to the end, my man. It has been a fabulous conversation. This was a great talk. I love this talk at the end. I mean, I think uh, hopefully we'll get some feedback. And if you guys want to email at radio at suspensemagazine.com and kind of tell us what you think. I would love to hear if anybody literally picks their books off of the New York Times bestseller list. Because, like I said, I mean, every time I kind of see it, I always kind of see the same authors. I really don't see anything special. You know, I never picked – it was like I never really picked my albums off the Billboard Top 100 albums. Never did it that way. So I'd be curious to see if anybody did it that way. So, Well, Jeff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Email we'll us, folks. Uh, tell us what yeah. you think.
0: And we'll be back February 14th. Um, check the website, suspensemagazine.com, and when we'll, we have the guest announced or something, I'll probably tweet it out or I'll stick it up on there. But, again, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Get all, you, uh, all your fun in one small package right there. That's, <laughs> that's a new tagline. Subscribe on iTunes, get like it. all your fun in one small package. Hmm. Interesting. It's like, it's like we're that Tiffany box that you open on Christmas. You just see the outside of the box, and you know it's going to be good. Right? That's what it is.
1: <laughs> so,
0: all right, man. Like we like to say, we'll see you guys all next time, and keep reading. Later, Jeff.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure. Good night.
0: Good night.